is going to be a pretty high level overview. We could go on and take a week on each paragraph. But the intention of this particular study is one, to get us to read through the confession and the scripture that underlies it. And then two, to recap it. So that's what I'm doing here. You guys have studied it, read it, and now we're going to recap. So we're not going to read all of the parts, but I'm just going to go through and give some high-level primary doctrinal points made in each paragraph. So, chapter 1 of the Holy Scripture um, of the Westminster Confession of Faith, paragraph 1, teaches us about the light of nature. God has given us a natural ability to think and to have moral rationale. And also those things that God created outside of us and within us, the works of creation, and then God's ruling over all things. All these things teach us about God, but are insufficient for salvation. So the first primary doctrine, natural law condemns and is insufficient for salvation. And then as we see the insufficiency, especially in Romans 2, Romans 1, where man knows enough to be without excuse, but not enough to be saved. We see then that scripture revelation is given by God and about God. It's from him and it's about him. And that is sufficient for salvation. The knowledge of God revealed in the scriptures, God having spoken to us in his son, we have a record, a saving record of the truth in the Bible. And then... The third major doctrine from this section is that the entire record, the monopoly, the one place where you may find God's saving truth is in the Bible. Um, Unwritten methods where God would reveal himself to a prophet in visions or by significant actions that they would take, all the manifold means by which God revealed himself Those are now ceased. God has committed the entirety of his revelation to writing. Everything we need for life and for godliness is given to us through that record. And therefore, because that's the case, that God has no longer given us these visions and revelations as he did by the prophets, because of the insufficiency of natural light, therefore the scriptures are most necessary. We must have them. We cannot do without them and be saved and glorify God. Second paragraph gives us a canonized list of the settled books. That's the first doctrine, is that God has given us a canonized or a standard list of books. The Old Testament books accepted by the Jews as well as by Christians. We agree with them about what those books are. And then the New Testament books delivered to us by Christ through his holy apostles in the New Testament scriptures. The second primary doctrine in paragraph 2 is that these are all inspired by God, meaning that God has breathed them out. They are his oracles, both the Old and New Testament. So that's the second doctrine, is the doctrine of inspiration. And then the third major doctrine here is that these are a rule, because they are God-breathed, this list of settled books... These are a rule for what we are to believe and how we are to live. The rule of faith and life. And then, um, not merely doctrine, but living. And not certain areas of life to the exclusion of others. 
Now, one thing, one remark I want to make as we go through our review of the confession is that all of these doctrines that we're looking at that are derived from Scripture are consistent with themselves. That's important to see. And the reason why this is so important is that if you say, I want to take this part of the doctrinal platform out, what you end up doing is because they're all integrated with one another, is by removing one portion, you end up compromising the whole. That's a very important point. Because this is a system of doctrine that stands together, and we'll see this, because it's a consistent whole, you can't pick and choose among it. You kind of have to take it or leave it. And it's also because the way that God has revealed himself is consistent. And because our confession is based off of the scripture teaching, it therefore reflects that consistency. Okay, paragraph 3 of chapter 1 concerns the Apocrypha. These are not God-breathed. And therefore, they're not a rule of faith. They're rather, um, just like any other human writing, they might have some good things to say. And it's appropriate to cite these books, just as appropriate if you read something in the Aeneid that was true or valuable, you could cite it. But it has no authority other than a mere human authority. It does not bind the conscience. So first primary doctrine in this paragraph, Scripture has no competitors. There aren't other canons or rules of faith. There aren't other standards or measures for what we should believe or what we should do. That's the first major major doctrine. And then the second primary doctrine here in paragraph 3 is that human writings do in fact have some use. They can be approved of, they can be made use of, but only in human ways. They're only probable arguments. They don't conclude anything. They don't teach us Uh, absolute truth because they're from a finite source and concerning the apocrypha it's very interesting one of the primary books the wisdom of um, what is it wisdom of Sirach the son of Jesus I think it's called he actually apologizes at the beginning of the book for the errors he's going to make within the book so if you said well that's the bible it's on a level with the Gospel of Luke, for example, who says, you may know the certainty of those things in which you've been instructed. I'm giving you an infallible, immovable truth versus this guy apologizes for making mistakes. Okay, do those belong in the same collection? Well, of course not. Um, You also have the superstition in the book Tobit where they're looking at entrails of animals to determine the future like pagans do. So we don't look at those and say, that's the Bible, that's ridiculous. But there is a human use you can make of them, and they may have some usage historically or as other human writings. Okay, and then paragraph four, primary doctrines. First is that the scripture is completely self-authenticating. God, speaking in the Holy Scriptures, does not need human testimony of any particular man or of the state or of the church God himself has spoken, and therefore his word does not depend upon man's testimony. And then the second primary doctrine is that God is truth. Truth is not something outside of God that we measure him by. God is truth. Truth itself. So when he speaks, 
We rely on his testimony about those things. And that goes back to what we talked about with epistemology, if you remember last week. How can you know anything? Well, you have to have a completely infallible source of knowledge that knows everything, or everything you think you know, you don't actually have certainty. Because God is truth itself, and because he knows everything, and because he has spoken, therefore, we can be assured of the divine truth of Scripture. So, God is truth, the second major doctrine. The third is that God is the author thereof. So we're talking about Holy Scripture, that it's just defined as a book, a set of books, a book of books, you might say, the canonized Old and New Testament Scriptures that God himself spoke out, breathed out. These, without any competition by human writings, these... God has authored them. He is the author thereof. Now this is very important because, remember I said if you take a little thread or a little part of our system of doctrine out, you lose the whole. One of the parts of doctrine that people try to remove is the authority and authorship of God of the Bible. Oh no, these are the words of Paul. And these are the words of John. And these are the words of Moses. And these are the words of Isaiah. Oh, sure, they're the word of God, but they're also the word of man. And this goes on even in Reformed seminaries, so-called, where they try to make the Bible a human as well as a divine book. And they try to say that you got different theologies in the Bible, the John's theology, Paul's theology, James' theology, Isaiah's theology. And you'll see their little books, the eschatology of the Apostle Paul. Well, I'm not interested in what the eschatology of the Apostle Paul is. And you shouldn't be either. You should be interested in what is the eschatology of God, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, of the Holy Spirit speaking in the Bible. That's what you should be interested in. You should not care what Paul thought about eschatology. You should care what the Holy Spirit who spoke through Paul said about eschatology. So God is the author of Scripture. And if you take that part away, guess what? You lose the doctrine of inspiration, the authority of scripture, the certainty of knowledge. All these things that we're going to look at and that we have looked at vanishes. Because if you're consistent with the idea of it being from a finite source, you cannot rely on the whole thing. And guess what? They don't rely on the whole thing. That's why you were talking about, Casey, people teaching the Bible at a a conference offends presbyters now. Oh, you can't teach the Bible at a youth camp. Why? Well, because we think it's the word of man. That's really where it started, is we think it's the word of man. But God is the author of scripture, not men. That's what we're confessing here. And because God's the author, and because God is self-authenticating, and because God is truth itself, therefore we are to receive it, because it's God's word. Okay, so Fourth major doctrine, scripture as a revelation of God is the final epistemic authority. The final epistemic authority, meaning you can't have certainty of knowledge without God revealing himself in the word. He has done so and therefore we can have knowledge. And then also the Bible is the axiom from which all other conclusions are reasoned out. It is a set of truths about God and about the duty God requires of us, and those axioms formulate the foundational truth from which all others are reasoned out. 
Okay? And that's the Bible. It's to be received as God's word, as truth itself has spoken to us, and he is the author of this book. All right. Now, um, paragraph five concerns the church's function, that we may be moved by the church's testimony to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture. And then there are other internal arguments from the Bible itself, the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, that is that the doctrine of the Bible actually changes people, the majesty of the style of the Bible, the consent of all the parts, that they all are consistent with each other, the scope of the whole. All these things, we can argue from them and say, this is how we know the Bible is the word of God. So one primary doctrine is that the church is to move us to a high and reverent estimation of Scripture. The way that the church uses the Bible should instill reverence for the Bible. So if a pastor cracks jokes based off of the text of Scripture, he's doing the opposite of what his function is to be. Because he's saying the Bible is fodder for my wit, as opposed to an authoritative voice of God speaking to us, that you all should respect. He's saying it's a butt of jokes. That's taking God's name in vain. So the church is to function to move us by its testimony to induce people, to lead them in to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scriptures. Second major doctrine here is that the Scriptures, when you read them, they have heavenly doctrine, efficacious or accomplishing what God intends for salvation or judgment, they are majestic. They are what we call perspicuous. That is, they, they are consistent with it themselves. And the scriptures also glorify God. So these are attributes of scripture. Heavenly, efficacious, majestic, perspicuous, and glorifying to God. Those are the attributes of scripture. The third primary doctrine is that the scriptures make a full discovery of the way of salvation. There isn't something lacking about the way of salvation not contained within the Bible, or reasonably deduced from it. <clears throat> so God has given us a full discovery. There is a monopoly of saving truth in the Bible that you will not find anywhere else. You need nothing else because God has spoken and has shown us the way of salvation. And then scripture evidences itself to be the word of God. Again, God authenticates his own word. And he also gives evidence in the matter, in the scope, in the efficacy, in the heavenliness, in the majesty of the style. All these God has given us uh, flashing lights that say this is the truth. This is God's word. Because you couldn't have, just think about two great men, two great scholars agreeing on, let's say you gave them 15 points to debate. Would they agree the greatest scholars in philosophy, could they get? Could you get them together and they could agree on 15 points of philosophy? What if you had the great botanists of the world? Could they all agree on 15 points? What if you had the greatest psychologists in the world and they all came together? Could they actually agree with one another? No, they'd be fighting for years about, oh, this is right and that's right and that. And then you think about, okay, so what if you took the greatest philosophers of all time and ask, can they agree with each other? And you went over a period of 2,000, 3,000 years and tried to figure out, can we get them all to agree? No, you couldn't do that. 
What if they spoke different languages and were from different nations, let's say? Maybe they're mostly from one nation, but from others. Well, that's all what I just said describes the Bible. Over thousands of years, different people at different times, some thousands of years or hundreds of years before specific events occur, and then others who record those events as they occur, shortly after their occurrence, they all agree with each other about every single point that they make. So how could that happen if God weren't the author? If some superintending being who knows everything hasn't spoken, that would not be statistically possible. It could not occur. So these are all arguments by which the Bible evidences itself. The scriptures evidence themselves to be the word of God. But fifth major doctrine. So the fourth is scripture evidences itself to be the word of God. And the fifth is our subjective persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority of scripture is because the spirit moves us to this. The spirit working in us, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. We may be persuaded to a certain extent, but we can't have an infallible assurance from those mere probable arguments. It takes an inner working of the Spirit of God because the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them for they're spiritually discerned. So it takes a working of the Holy Spirit. Now, pages one and two, any questions? Casey, did you have any questions about or any of your family have questions? No. Okay. All right, page three, <clears throat> paragraph six. Um, first primary doctrine is that everything in God's self-revelation is either explicitly set down in Scripture or may be deduced implicitly in Scripture or from Scripture. This is the good and necessary consequence. Everything that we need for the glory of God, for our salvation, faith or life, is either there explicitly or may be deduced from it. Now, the second primary doctrine, which is related to this, is that logic serves faith. Faith is not irrational, in other words. Faith is not a leap away from nature, because man is naturally a reasoning being. We don't say... Well, now that I believe, I believe absurdities. That is the, the romantic position, which is unnatural. It says that man should be like a beast in order to be a believer. You should unman yourself to become a Christian. That's ridiculous. Logic serves faith. It is not the master over our faith, but it serves faith by taking the revelation that God has given and drawing conclusions concerning what we should believe and what we should do. Uh, third primary doctrine. For the saving understanding of the truth revealed in Scripture, it requires divine illumination. God must enlighten our minds, an inward illumination of the Spirit. You could be a scholar. You could have all the facts and propositions of the Bible and you could use logic to deduce things from the Bible and still go to hell. Because you must understand these things in a saving way 
laying hold of the truth that's revealed specifically concerning Christ, not merely the external shell of the truth, but the, in, the internal working of the Spirit. Okay, a fourth primary doctrine of paragraph 6 is that there are some circumstances of worship and government that are not regulated by divine command, but are normative. So, circumstances concerning worship and government are things like, what time do you meet on the Lord's Day? What sort of book or non-book do you use to sing the Psalms? Um, People might memorize the Psalms, for example, and they might be under persecution, so they might not have books. You know, these things happen. Um, Unusual circumstances. And circumstances also concern in the government of the church. We usually, we talk about in the book of church order that we have administrative rules. Those are circumstances of government. We don't hold to them as divinely, infallibly inspired, but we use them in the government of the church. They're common to human actions and societies. For example, one person should speak in a judicial meeting at a time. That's a common rule that scripture doesn't give us explicitly but we use that for good order. Those are certain circumstances in worship and government. And then, again, fifth doctrine, circumstances of worship and government are for good order only. They're not, we're not slaves to them as we are to the, the master's commands. We don't have to observe them religiously in that sense, but they're merely for good order. That's it. Okay, paragraph 7 Primary doctrines in paragraph 7 is that first, all things revealed are not equally clear, either in the objective sense of clarity or in the subjective sense, the particular understanding and clarity people have. So, alike plain in themselves would be the objective clarity, and then alike clear unto all is the subjective clarity with which people understand things. And then second primary doctrine is that if there are things that are essential for salvation that we must know, those will become clear objectively. God has made them clear. God has opened them up somewhere in the Bible that even if you're an unlearned person, using ordinary means, you can have a sufficient understanding of them. This is why Christianity is not a secretive cult by the way, or a mystery religion, as Roman Catholicism is. Because in Romanism, they say, the Bible is a book of enigmas and mysteries, therefore you must come to our priesthood in order to understand the Bible. You can't understand it by yourself. The basic teachings of the Bible are not clear. Therefore, you need the tradition of the church to make them clear to you. That's the mystery religions, especially the Gnosticism of the early church that claimed that the Bible was a book of enigmas and nobody could really understand it, so you had to come through them. They had secret private revelations that weren't available to all you unwashed masses who don't understand spiritual things anyway, so come to us. We're the mediators of truth. No. The Bible itself is clear. In those major points that must be known for salvation, any ordinary person, learned or unlearned, 
by using the ordinary means that God has put at his disposal, he may learn the truth that leads to salvation. And this is a very important point. Um, Again, ordinary means in the second place. Don't need something extraordinary. All right, then paragraph 8. The primary doctrines in paragraph 8 is that the original autographs of Scripture were inspired in Greek and in Hebrew. Hebrew in the Old Testament and a little bit of Aramaic, which is a form of Hebrew, and then Greek in the New Testament. These are immediately inspired by God. Now, the second major doctrine is that God in his providence has in a very special way made sure that the original inspired scriptures given in Hebrew and Greek have been preserved throughout every single age of the church. That's an extremely important point. Because if that's not the case, you can believe that the Bible is infallible, but you don't have a Bible to predicate that of. You can't say any particular Bible is the inspired word of God because you don't think that any of them are. And I'll give you an example. There was a a monastery by Mount Sinai in the 1800s that had a garbage bin where they put all the trash manuscripts. Somebody went digging through the trash and found a manuscript that said that it was the New Testament, or looked like it was the New Testament. Those guys took that trash and they said, let's make a trash manuscript of the Bible. It's called the critical text. It was derived from these manuscripts at a monastery near Mount Sinai in Arabia. And then they said, we need to reconsider what we think is the word of God in the New Testament here based off of these trashy manuscripts we found. And why were they in the trash bin? Because they were corrupt. So they threw them out. So the text of the scripture has been preserved by God's singular care and providence throughout all ages And when the people came in the 1800s and said, oh, by the way, God hasn't preserved this for the church throughout all ages. We just found some in a garbage bin. That's now the word of God. And do you think that they've kept that manuscript since the 1800s? No. They changed it a couple years later, and then they changed it again, and then they changed it again and again and again. And now they have the 35th edition or whatever it is of their critical text. So they're constantly changing. So you can say, I believe the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. But I don't know what the Bible is. Because it constantly changes. You see that? We don't believe that. Because that's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Jesus said, every jot and tittle of the law will be preserved by God until the end of the age. So if those little markings in the Hebrew text are going to stay forever, you can be assured... That's going to be the same with the New Testament. He's not going to change his mind. Oh, yeah, that was Hebrew. We'll preserve that. Greeks, yeah, whatever. Who cares? Constantly changing. Who knows whether we have the word of God? No. God has preserved his word throughout all ages. So that's the second primary doctrine. Sorry, I got on my soapbox there. Um, Third primary doctrine, the authentic originals that we just talked about are the final court of authority. So you have the autographs, written by 
of the apostles themselves, God breathing through them those words. And then you have what we call the apographs, those written from those autographs and carried down through all ages so that we have in our possession the Greek manuscripts exactly as the apostles wrote them. Okay, so that's very important. But And those are the ones that we appeal to as the final appeal, the Hebrew and the Greek of the Old and New Testament. Those are the final court of appeal. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't have translations. Rather, because the word of God is intended by God, by every nation, all the Gentiles are supposed to read the word, they're supposed to search the word, they're supposed to do this in the fear of God under divine commandment, the vulgar languages, the common languages of every nation must have a translation for the people. Because otherwise they can't have the word of God plentifully dwelling in them. They can't worship God in an acceptable manner. So, Scripture is to be translated into known languages for the edification of the saints. That's the fourth primary doctrine. Scripture is to be translated into known languages for the edification of the saints. And vulgar there doesn't mean with cussing. That's not what that refers to. Okay. Paragraph 9 concerns the interpretation of Scripture. First primary doctrine, the interpretation is infallibly done by Scripture itself. Scripture interprets itself infallibly. If we seek to determine the meaning on our own, we will be fallible. So that's the first rule of interpretation is interpret by Scripture itself. And second... The sense of Scripture is one in every single text, as opposed to three or four. The allegorical, the literal, the anagogical, and the, what is the other one? And there's, some, there's some fourfold scheme that the papists came up with. The church fathers, they had different opinions, but they generally agreed that the text didn't just say what it said. It had to say something else because what it says is not often pleasing to us and therefore we must consider that it means something else. And actually they got this from the philosophers who would read the old poets and would say, well, that sounds pretty crass about the gods on Olympus. Let's say it represents something so they could maintain some respect for their deities even though they had different ideas about what was right more in accordance with natural reason than, say, the poets had. Homer, for example. They're reading Homer and they're thinking, this is trashy. Maybe this represents some spiritual truth. So people, the Philo the Jew and the Alexandrian school of Jews, they'd read the Old Testament and say, this is trash. Let's say it doesn't really say that. It means this over here. We can't say that Jacob did that. Let's say it spiritually represents blah, 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 blah. So it's a way of disrespecting God and his word to say, no, you didn't really mean what you said. You meant this. You should have said this spiritual thing. You said this crass, literal thing. So we can't say that that even exists. One church father went so far as to pretend like certain passages didn't record history. Oh, that didn't really happen. It just represents this thing over here. He literally told his hearers, don't believe the text of scripture. Believe the spiritualization that I'm saying about the text. So we don't believe that. The sense of of the scripture is one in each singular text. Now that could be that it's a figurative language or it could be the Bible's using a parable and an allegory or whatever, but it's one sense. 
you might take application from it, but it's one sense. And then paragraph 10, the supreme judge is scripture. It's the final judge over any other theological authorities. And why? It goes back to the epistemological point. If this is God's word, then therefore he has spoken in a way that we can understand because he created us, made us logical beings. He has spoken. If everybody else speaks, where do they fall in the chain of authority? Equal with God, under God, over God. Where do they fall? Well, of course, to ask the question is to answer it. They all fall under God. So if he's speaking in scripture, then no one else has a higher authority. Are there any questions about those paragraphs 6 through 10? No? Okay. Chapter 2 then, page 5. We'll try to burn through this. Okay, paragraph 1 deals with that there is only one true and living God. Primary doctrine number 2. God's being is unlimited by things outside of himself. Doctrine three, God's perfections are unlimited, meaning he's infinite in all of these perfections. His wisdom, his holiness, his freedom. Number four, God is indivisible. He's not subject to the limitations or infirmities of creatures. Now, the unity of God, God is one, means you can't sever him into parts. Think of that in contrast with man. Can you sever humans into parts? Well, certainly you can, actually. When man dies, does he stay together as a unity? No, he gets body and spirit. You can even sever the parts into parts. You can sever the uh, arm from the torso, right? From the shoulder, you might sever fingers off of the... So man is divisible. He's divided. He's not a unified being. God is indivisible. He cannot be divided. He can't be cut into parts. We can consider different aspects of what God reveals about himself in the Bible, but that's not to say that God is therefore divided. He's merely considered in those external operations or in his specific attributes. Okay, God's works, what he does in creation and providence, those reflect his independence and infinity. Point number five. So whatever he does shows us that he doesn't need anything. He doesn't depend on anyone or anything else. And that he is a law unto himself. He's infinite. He's not limited by things outside of himself. And then sixth, God's works all glorify him. Everything he does, even if we think God's name is being defamed, which in fact it may be, Yet God still works that to his glory. All of God's works in creation and providence, they all glorify him. And then the seventh point is that God's justice and mercy are not in conflict, but they complement each other. Again, God is indivisible. He is just and he is merciful. He's just, we would say, naturally, and he's merciful voluntarily. God doesn't have to be merciful, but he's chosen to be merciful. God has to be just. That explains the whole reason for the cross. 
God must be just because it's a natural attribute. God can be merciful because he chooses to do so. So for God to be merciful, he still has to be just. And that's why Jesus died on the cross. So that God could show mercy as he chose to and could maintain his justice as he must. Paragraph 2. Primary doctrines, God is self-existent. He is Jehovah. He has being from himself and to himself. He's self-sufficient. He's totally independent. That's the idea. He's an eternal God. He needs nothing else. He does not depend on others. Furthermore, God, in the second place, is the fountain of all other beings. He glorifies himself through other things that he has made. That's the second doctrine. Third major doctrine. God's sovereignty is total and his knowledge is exhaustive and independent. As opposed to us, we get our knowledge by dependence on God revealing things to us or implanting knowledge in us. God doesn't need that. He doesn't need someone to put light of nature in him like we do. His knowledge is exhaustive. It's of every single thing actual and possible. And then fourth doctrine, God's holiness is pervasive, both internally, that is inside of the Godhead, and toward all others. God's holiness is pervasive. All of his works toward his creatures, his holiness is in evidence. And then the fifth is that these attributes of God, his perfections, his infinity, all these things we've been talking about, those are the basis on which creatures owe worship to God. Because of those perfections, his infinity, his self-existence, his unity, his sovereignty, his knowledge, his justice, his mercy, his holiness, because of all these, the work of creation, the work of providence, the work of redemption, because of all this, that's why creatures owe God worship. And then paragraph 3 deals with the doctrine of God, the Trinity. First primary doctrine, there are three distinct persons in this one Godhead. This is not a division of God. This is one God, unity in plurality, three persons. The second doctrine, each person is of the same substance, power, and eternity. So there's a um, fullness of the Godhead in each of the persons of the Godhead. The same substance or essence, you might say. Not that they're made of the same stuff, but that they are the same stuff, the same substance, the same power, the same eternity. And then the third major doctrine is that these three persons in the Godhead are distinguished by their personal properties. And these, we say, the Father is unbegotten. He's the source, fountain of the Godhead. The Son is begotten of the Father from all eternity. And the Spirit proceeds from the Father and from the Son. And we'll see that actually, um, I think, in Galatians this week, Galatians 4, that 
the Spirit of God, who proceeds from the Father, also comes forth from the Son. And he's also called the Spirit of Christ, as well as the Spirit of the Father, as well as the Spirit of God. So he proceeds from both the Father and the Son. He eternally proceeds, as well as in the work of redemption and creation, also proceeding. Okay, so these are the three primary doctrines. Any questions about chapter 2? No? Okay, chapter 3 of God's eternal decree. Paragraph 1 concerns the eternal, free, unchangeable, and comprehensive nature of the decree. That it is an eternal decree. It is done freely on God's part. It is unchangeable. That is, it is fixed, whatever he decrees. And it comprehends everything that comes to pass. The second doctrine... This does not make God the author of sin. Now, auctor means the origin of a thing. We say God is the author of Scripture because he is the origin of it. The source of Scripture is God himself. Is God the source of sin? Well, no, he's not. In fact, he can't be for several reasons. One is the holiness of God is is justice. He can't be the source of evil. He can't approve of evil. The other is that sin isn't really a thing. Sin doesn't really exist as a thing. Everything that exists was created by God. Sin is a defect in things. It's a lacking of something, as darkness is the absence of light. So sin is where someone fails in a thing that God intended or designed to be the case. So when a person commits an act of murder, they have failed in a specific virtue that God or a series of virtues that God requires of them. They have failed to live up to what God made man to be. So sin isn't really any, it doesn't have a positive being. It doesn't have an actual existence. It's a privative existence. It's the lack of something that creates sin. Therefore, God is not the author of sin. He cannot be For those two reasons. So God is not the author of sin. Even though he has decreed all these sins to come to pass. The creature is the source and author of sin. Both the devil himself and his angels in their own case. And Adam in the case of the whole human race. They are the authors of sin. And then finally the third in this uh, paragraph. Liberty and contingency and secondary causes are not taken away by God's eternal decree, but rather established by his decree. And this is a very high mystery that people have trouble getting their head around. If you say that man is free and there's contingency, God must not be sovereign. And if you say God is sovereign, you must say that man doesn't have his contingency or his free uh, choices that he makes. There's that kind of idea. But the inverse is actually the case. If God didn't sovereignly rule over all things and decree all things, one man would not exist. So if man didn't exist, could he make choices? Of course not. Could the will of man exist without God's decree? No, of course not. Could the circumstances come about to which man responds by making choices? No, of course not. So rather than obliterate the will of man, 
There is no will of man if there isn't the primary will of God. There is no secondary cause if there isn't a primary cause, is another way of thinking about it. So liberty and contingency and secondary causes are established by God's decree. All right, and then paragraph two, one primary doctrine, God's decree is independent of and not contingent on historical events. So God didn't finagle things that fell out without his control. Rather, he decreed independently of the creature and all the things that they do. Nothing is contingent so far as God is concerned. Concerning how we see it, oh, there's contingency all the time. If I don't do this, then this won't happen. And if because I did this, this happened. That's how we think about it. But as far as God, nope, nothing is contingent. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows the means and the end. He knows it all. There's nothing hidden from him. And it's because he decreed it. If he hadn't fixed it, he couldn't foreknow it. He couldn't have knowledge beforehand if it, if it were contingent. There is no foreknowledge without fixity. It has to be fixed by the decree so that he can foreknow it. So, in any case. Um, paragraph 3. Primary doctrines. Uh, God's glory is manifest in angels and men. This is why God decreed things. And then... The second primary doctrine, predestination is unto eternal life. Foreordination is to everlasting death. So God's going to glorify himself in men and angels, some by predestinating to life, some by foreordaining to everlasting death. And you might ask yourself, what is the difference between predestination and foreordination? The answer is nothing. There literally is no difference between the one and the other. Destiny and ordination, basically the same. For means prior to and pre means prior to. So the two mean the same thing. Now, the reason, just to mention, the reason why the divines use two different words is because there is a debate that rages among Reformed theologians about the relationship between God and the reprobates. Is it he just kind of lets them go? Or does he have a positive, active decree that he makes concerning them? The double predestinarians say there's a positive relation. That would I'm of that camp. There's a positive predestination. And the single predestinarians are kind of squeamish about that idea. Eh, I don't want to say that. It kind of sounds bad. So they kind of back off from it, mainly for what I would call emotional or irrational considerations. Um, they don't, they don't, they kind of see, yeah, I see your point, makes sense. Okay, I can see those texts of scripture, but it just sounds bad. It's like bad PR. So they tend to back off from it. Um, I was reading a guy recently, he said it's not pastoral to believe in double predestination. Basically, it's like, it's not pastoral to believe the Bible. It's, come on, give me a break. It doesn't have very good cogent arguments made in its behalf. But because there was this debate, in order to get everybody satisfied so that they could all swallow what was said here, they used two different words. But the two words mean the same thing. In any case, get off my soapbox again. Um, paragraph four, the primary doctrine here is that election and reprobation 
are particular and unchangeable. So he's not decreeing election for a class of people and you can kind of join the class or leave the class. No, it's of particular persons, angels and men, thus predestinated, particularly and unchangeably designed, okay? You can't become a reprobate if you're elect. You can't become elect if you're a reprobate. It's specifically fixed by God. Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. Okay, those are specific persons, not classes of people. Now again, from the human perspective, we say, okay, there's contingency, you can kind of join. You can see where, oh, well, he was converted at this point, and then he became an elect. (laughs) No, no, no. The reason why he was converted is because God had chosen him before the foundation of the world. All right. So then from paragraph five, primary doctrines, election is eternal, immutable, unconditional, and it's out of God's mere free grace. So now we're getting into the predestination to life. It's eternal before the foundation of the world. It cannot be changed. It's not conditioned on things in the creature. And again, this just actually, you think about this, what I was saying about um, how the confession fits together, how it's consistent. Remember what we said about God. God is independent in his knowledge, in his will, in his holiness, in his judgments. He's independent of the creature. So how could we make his knowledge about election contingent on what creatures do? That's, a, that's called Arminianism. Election is contingent on what God sees the creature do. Oh, I see this person believes... All predestinate now. Okay. Now you're predestinated because I saw that you would believe. Foreseeing faith is the grounds on which God predestinates in the Arminian system. Oh. You just made God into not God. You just became an atheist. He's no longer immutable in his knowledge and his decree and his holiness. He's now mutable because he responds to man. And man changes God's mind in eternity past even. Wow, we're pretty special. So no, it's not. It's eternal, immutable, unconditional. And it's out of God's mere free grace. And then the second thing is predestination to life is not conditioned in the creature, but rather, here's the reason, for the praise of the glorious grace of God. That's why God did it. Not because of the creature, but for the praise of his grace. All right, paragraph paragraph six there. Primary doctrines. First, God has ordained all the means that accomplish his ends. He didn't just say this thing is going to happen. He also said these are the steps leading up to it. And then second major doctrine. This includes the fall, redemption by Christ, effectual calling, justification, adoption, sanctification, and preservation to the end. So the fall, God ordained the fall in order to accomplish his purpose with the elect. That's one of the means unto that end. They who are elected, being fallen in Adam, are redeemed by Christ. And that generally reflects what I would call the supralapsarian position that has to do with the order of the decrees. God, did he uh, put, here's another way of thinking of it. What is last in execution is first in intention. That's how we think of predestination. 
So what falls out last is our glorification. That means that when God drew up the purpose, that's his, his end in mind. He thinks of the end from the very beginning of his purposes. Now we don't think of it like uh, first he did this, then he did that, then he did that. But what is the logical order of the decrees of God? Did he say, I will decree to create man, and then I will decree that man will fall, and then from the fall will I elect some now from fallen mass unto eternal life, and others I'll let stay in that fallen mass. Well, that's not the scripture representation. The scripture representation is that God takes of one lump, and what does he do? He makes some unto honor, and some he just lets sit there, right? Wrong. No, he takes them and makes them unto dishonor. So the lump is not the fallen mass where some just remain there. The lump is the unfallen mass. If we're going to use that analogy, we have to think about it. He's saying that God took out of that mass the same lump and made some to honor and some to dishonor. So here it's saying they're already elected and then they're considered as fallen in Adam and redeemed by Christ. But the election comes first, you see that. So the logically logical priority is given to the election, last in execution, first in intention, elected unto eternal life. Now here are the means by which I will accomplish that purpose that I've predestinated. I will purpose this final thing and I'll accomplish it by these means. So the fall is part of that. So we call that the suprolapsarian position because it's above the fall where predestination happens. Supra is above. Supralapsi means above the fall. So that's that specific position. But the infras say, infra is within the fallen mass. So their argument is, God considers us as fallen, and then he elects us to salvation in Christ. All right, so that's a whole different discussion. So the means to accomplish the end, though, in the second place, include all those things, including the fall, redemption by Christ, etc. And then third primary doctrine here is that Christ's redemption and its application are only for the elect. This is exclusive. It does not apply to all men. Now, I think we're about at 54 minutes, so I'm going to go ahead and say, let's stop right there. Any questions, KCU or anyone in your household have any questions about any of these no, parts? Really so okay, well, maybe next week you'll come up with some questions about what we talked about tonight. So yeah. if you have any of those, please bring them. And same with my household, bring them to me if you have any questions about what we've talked about tonight. Let's close in prayer.